0: This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. As always, just a quick reminder that I do record while living on a sailboat, so you might hear some boat noises or water noises in the background. Um, Last week's episode was part one on serial killer William Dathan Holbert and his girlfriend Laura Michelle Reese. This is part two. So, if you haven't listened to part one, be sure to go back and do so, or you will likely feel lost. We ended last week's episode with the murder of Bo Islar. It wasn't long after that murder that Wild Bill decided to kill Cher Hughes, and her murder led to the murderous couple's capture. After taking over Cher Hughes' home, Bill began working in what I understand to be a backpacker's hostel that had. Previously belonged to Cher. He let go of all her staff and brought in new people. He and Laura's relationship was still hot and cold. There was a lot of strife in this time in their lives. He admittedly became lazy and unhappy, and at night he reportedly got into the habit of getting drunk in expatriate bars. He really did nothing to formally take over the ownership of Cher's home like he did to the other two homes. He just took physical possession of it, along with the rest of her assets. He was living the single life for a short time, before he realized that he really missed his girlfriend. So he went back to the brown farm, where she was still living. They took the time to throw a couple of wild parties, and sharers old home, though. Trying to work on their relationship, they decided that it was time to take a little vacation away from home in Boca. So they rented a house, and while there, Wild Bill got a phone call telling him that the police were looking for him. He and Reese had to escape, so they left for Costa Rica that same night. They moved from place to place in Costa Rica, not staying anywhere for longer than three or four days. On July 23rd or 24th, Reese caught a glimpse of their photos on TV. She was very upset and afraid because the newscaster had called them serial killers. Once again, according to Bill, she had no idea what he had done and was very confused, wondering why they were being called serial killers. In the confusion, they decided to keep running. They stole a man's boat and threw him over the side and tried to escape to Nicaragua. The Nicaraguan police stopped them and held them in custody until they found out who Wild Bill really was. After interrogating Bill, whose story you just heard, they began to interrogate his girlfriend. She clammed up and wouldn't say a word except that she had no clue what had been going on. She couldn't speak or understand much Spanish and the prosecutor's office provided an interpreter for her. She complained to them that the Nicaraguan police, after arresting her, had stolen her wedding ring. That being said, Bill claims they were never officially married, but he always did introduce her as his wife. When asked, what does Bill do for a living, her response was, I don't know. When asked, where does his money come from, her response was, again, I don't know. She gave the same answer about stolen credit cards and checkbooks found inside their home. These had belonged to Cher. She had no information to share about where the Brown family had gone, and she didn't know how much her boyfriend had paid for the Brown's property either. When asked about the jewelry she was wearing around her neck, and on her arms. Jewelry that belonged to Cher Hughes. Her response was, I had no idea that these belonged to her. She claimed not to be able to remember where she entered Panama, or what documents, if any, were shown. She played totally ignorant to everything. After a while, Bill's confession was made public, and the two of them were taken to jail. Panamanian journalists scrambled to find out more about this couple. Local media didn't know what to make of them. First of all, there was the color of their skin. Most of the Panamanian prison population is totally poor and dark-skinned. The perception was, and still is, that white people can buy their way out of trouble. Maybe it's not by bribing policemen or judges, although this definitely does happen, but more commonly by employing the very best lawyers to find loopholes and cause endless delays in cases from ever coming to trial. In Panama, long delays in criminal trials are common and almost expected. Another common misperception in Latin America is that serial killers and the like are a product of first world countries like the United States and other English-speaking countries. They don't believe this stuff happens in Latin societies. In their minds, they sort of blow it off, saying, oh well, this is just crazy gringos killing gringos. Bill hired a good lawyer, and got the embassy involved on his behalf. His local lawyer told him that if he can implicate someone else, a higher-up or something like that, his sentence could be halved. So he quickly changed his story to the following, which he maintains today. Hold on to your hats, because this will blow you away. He says that shortly after arriving in Panama, he met a wealthy man. This man made his money as a pimp, and... This guy was having trouble collecting some debt that was owed to him. The man, another man, owed the pimp $25,000, and the pimp was complaining to Wild Bill about it. Bill responded, well, I'll go get it for you, and the man was like, sure, go ahead. So Wild Bill goes to the address given to him by the pimp and beats the crap out of the debtor. He collects the $25,000 and brings it back to the pimp. So, now this guy's amazed, and he, he was able to get his money back so fast, and he ends up giving Bill almost half of the collected money. He then goes on to tell Wild Bill that Panama needs somebody like him. Wild Bill's thinking he won the lottery. All he had to do was rough somebody up a little bit and get paid thousands of dollars. So, this pimp invites him to the local country club. This became Wild Bill's introduction to some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in Panama. He meets another man there at the country club who has a daughter. She's dating someone that he doesn't want dating his daughter. So he asks Wild Bill if he'll go take care of it, and Bill willingly obliged. Bill goes to the kid's house, beats him up, and then has the young man call his girlfriend and break up with her over the phone. The next day, he goes back to the girl's father. She's crying. She's upset and her father is thrilled because his daughter's heart has been broken by this boy that he didn't approve of. The father gladly pays Wild Bill for his efforts, and this was just the beginning for Wild Bill. He says eventually he was asked to be a hitman for the cartel. To explain how this happened, he says that he just happened to go to a gringo bar in Costa Rica. He's having a drink there, enjoying himself, and he meets a man named Mike Brown for the first time. Mike Brown said, as I said in episode one, was from Boca del Toro. In Boca del Toro, there's about 2,000 expatriates that live there, more or less permanently. About two-thirds of them are Americans. Bill believes that many of these people left their home country and were not allowed or able to return for various reasons. The islands of Boca del Toro had become a hangout for the types of expatriates who appreciate anonymity, and who might want to disappear from ex-spouses, tax authorities, the police, or whoever. Many of these people adopt false identities, and no one really seems to care about that. Mike Brown was one of these people. He was no innocent. His real name was Michael Ferris Salem, and he had been a career criminal with a hand in kidnapping and drug running. He supposedly escaped from prison. He was wanted in Florida and lived like a retiree in Panama. He had six-figure profits in a Hong Kong bank account and was living a secluded life with his wife and son. I'm going to continue to call him Michael Brown throughout the rest of the story, even though he did go by other names. In most sources, he was described as a criminal, but I did find a couple of sources that said he and his family were really in the witness protection program. What was agreed upon across the board was that his family stayed to themselves for the most part. They likely wanted to remain unknown or missing, and this would explain why no one officially searched for them in the over two years since they'd been killed. Yes, probably he had close family and friends come and visit his home, but I'm sure that Wild Bill said, oh no, they don't live here anymore. I've bought the place. These close family and friends who were searching for the Brown family couldn't go to authorities, especially if the family was in hiding. This made it easy for Bill and Laura, since no one was really going to do anything about this missing family. According to Bill, after meeting Michael Brown at a gringo bar, Brown started talking about the shipping business. Bill mentions that he has a 500-ton captain's license, but he goes on to say, of course, he can't use it because of the legal situation that he's in. Well, Michael Brown embraces this, saying, that's great that you're a crook. That's even better. He says, why don't you come out to my compound and let me show you how I do things. Wild Bill's excited about a potential job prospect, so he goes out to Mike's house, where it's explained to him what Mike's business really was. Bill said that what Mike Brown actually did to make a living was human trafficking. He said that Mike made arrangements for primarily Asian people to be shipped from South America into the United States, and he wanted Bill to work for him. Bill took the job and began acting as captain and transported many of these people from one place to another. During this time, he claimed he would make between 4000 and 10000 a week, depending on the number of people he shipped from place to place. He claims to have met some very powerful criminals, and this is how he became part of the cartel. He said the cartel in Panama isn't run by just one person. Instead, there are many people who are all part of the cartel, and they all work fairly independently. His first victim, Michael Brown, had done something to upset the cartel. They had learned that Bill was often used as muscle to intimidate people, so they asked Wild Bill to kill Mike Brown. So now, instead of hanging out with Mike for three days before killing him, he claims that he was actually long-term friends with Mike, which almost, in my mind, makes it worse. Because now he's killing someone who was a friend. In a second story, he explained a different reason for killing Bo Islar. It wasn't just greed and maybe a desire for a change of scenery that led Bill to kill Bo. Instead, it was another hired hit. He said that Bo was dealing in illegal pre-Columbian art, gold figurines to be precise. According to Bill, Bo wasn't well-liked among the people in Boca, and someone wanted him dead, so Bill took the job. He killed Bo in his boat, as he originally claimed. When asked why Bill didn't just leave Bo's body somewhere out in the ocean, his response was that too many people had been convicted based on a body part washing up to shore. Maybe it's a hand or a foot, but if a body is found, a conviction can be made. When the police asked who hired the hit, Wild Bill named off one of the most prominent and popular expatriates in Panama. According to one source, this man did nothing but good for Panama. But Bill had to name somebody if he was going to get half of his sentence removed by naming other nefarious criminals. He had to name someone. And as far as I could find, this man was innocent. Bill also claims that the number one rule is, don't be a snitch. Last but not least, he claimed that Cher Hugh's husband, Keith, wanted her dead and hired Bill to kill her. Keith had been having an affair, and after Cher found out she was going to leave him. They were going to be getting a divorce, and because everything they owned in Panama was in Cher's name, he knew he wouldn't get anything from the divorce. This was when he decided he wanted everything, and the only way Keith could have that was by having Cher killed. Wild Bill says that he should have killed Keith instead. The reason he says this is because, and I have to just remind you that these are Bill's words, he says that after Cher's murder... When Keith found out that people were asking about where Cher was, he got nervous. Supposedly, Keith had known that Wild Bill and his girlfriend were on vacation, so he took this opportunity to set Wild Bill up to take the fall. That way, he wouldn't have to pay Bill for the hit, and he would still end up with everything. So Keith took some of Cher's things and put them in Wild Bill's house. Bill claims that some of those items were identifying documents that belonged to Cher, and a pair of shares underwear. One source says that when investigators searched the house, they found these things, and they also found a jar filled with gold dental fillings and crowns. These likely belong to Mike Brown and his family. We will likely never know the true story in its entirety. Either way, Wild Bill Holbert is a murderer. He was convicted of killing five people and was eventually sentenced to 46 years in jail. No one believed his girlfriend-slash-wife, Laura, was innocent, and she was sent to jail for 26 years. Now let me tell you about the killing that he got away with. A couple in Costa Rica were shocked to learn that the body they had discovered buried under their house in November of 2007 was likely another victim of Bill and Laura. The couple's property in 2007 was a vacation rental property and was rented by the killers. They were using the names Big Bill and Michelle at the time. The homeowners were in the United States when the killers signed a three-month rental contract. They never actually met the people who rented their house. However, the description they got from their property manager fit perfectly. The guy who was renting the house was a real big guy named Bill, who was supposedly from Texas. The killers signed a contract to rent the house for three months, and they paid a deposit. However, they left in a big hurry just three weeks later. According to the owners, they didn't even turn in the keys. Bill and Laura said they had some kind of a huge family emergency back in the States, that they had to leave for immediately they claimed to be leaving right away for the airport and that they would not be back when the homeowners came back in late 2007 they found that their beautiful backyard had been cemented over the owner said the cement slab was massive and it would have taken someone a lot of work to put it down the job was done pretty unprofessionally and it looked terrible he said it measured 6 feet on one side and 10 on the other, and was almost 18 inches thick. After the initial shock, they decided to add a sunroom, but doing so meant the cement slab had to be redone. The homeowner was there when his hired workman uncovered a body which was wrapped in a green tarp. He thought that maybe someone had buried a dead dog there or something, but when he looked inside the tarp, he saw a torso and a ribcage. He described the body as mostly just bones and soup. Ugh, I hope none of you listeners chose to eat while listening to this episode. He closed the tarp back up and immediately called the authorities and his lawyer. I probably would have fed the fish, as we like to call it, on board the boat if I had seen or smelled something like that. The owner said the investigators in Costa Rica didn't do a very good job of investigating the case when the body was discovered in 2007. After the officials took the body away, the homeowners were told they should just continue on with the improvements and reconstruction on their house. They finished laying down the cement floor, and three days later, a secondary investigator showed up. But all the investigators could do at that point was show them the cement they had just poured over the entire area. This was long before the killers were apprehended or tied to any murders, and it wasn't until after they were caught that this body got some well-deserved attention. So who was the body under this met? Well, an investigator was able to track down a couple named Alan and Stacy Duckworth. They hadn't heard about the capture of the serial killers, Bill Holbert and Laura Reese, but they knew who they were. They had spent about six weeks hanging out with the killers while living in Costa Rica in early 2007. They partied together and even lived together for a short time. In light of the present revelations about the murderous couple, Alan and Stacy felt like they had dodged a bullet, literally. According to the Duckworths, they were trying to sell a bar they owned in Costa Rica. Bill was allegedly trying to help Alan sell his bar through advertisements on Craigslist. Alan said that Bill kept wanting to put the ads up using his own email account. When people would respond to the ad and call or email, Bill would talk to them and just say to Alan or Stacy that he had taken care of it. Alan started to get nervous one day when Bill came home with a box of hair dye and color. He told the investigator that Bill had dyed his hair to match Alan's hair color, cut his hair to match the hairstyle, and even trimmed his beard to make himself look like Alan. Alan and Stacy were alarmed that Bill was trying to make himself look like Alan in order to be able to assume his identity. They decided it was time to leave in a really big hurry. They said that Bill had left on his motorcycle somewhere and Stacy and Alan had quickly packed some stuff up in a suitcase and got the heck out of there. Alan said, to show you how fast we got out of there, I left my damn dog there, dude. I mean, I felt terrible about it, but I wasn't fit to die over it either. They was going to kill us. To be honest, I was a bit confused when I read this article. I needed more clarification. I haven't been able to find out if they left the bar and their home or what. Personally, I'd have a hard time leaving my home and business behind. Maybe there was a falling out between the couples and Bill became threatening, but there was no mention of it if that was the case. During the time the couple spent together, they talked about different business ventures that they could start up to make money. All the while, Wild Bill was trying to sell Allen's bar on Craigslist. The investigator said based on Bill's M.O., he was likely planning to kill them, assume their identities, and then take the money from the sale of the bar and move on to his next set of victims, who would then have been the Brown family in Boca. As Allen and Stacy were hurriedly packing to make their escape, as they were convinced that their lives were in danger, they grabbed a handful of paperwork that Holbert had laying around, These, they believed, were documents that could conceivably be protection against Holbert in the future. They were things like copies of passports, business cards, and handwritten notes scribbled on pieces of paper. Stacy gave these items to the investigator to check into some of the names on the documents. She wanted to know if the people were still alive. One of the documents she had was a business card from a disbarred lawyer from Wisconsin. His name was Jeffrey Klein. When Jeffrey Klein's name was searched with the word lawyer and Wisconsin, the details of illegal proceedings came up. In that document, it describes how investigators discovered that Klein had transferred $107,000 to a bank in Costa Rica. He took that money out of the bank. Stacy shared that when she and her husband had first met Bill and Laura in Costa Rica, one of the first things Bill told them was that he had just sold a property for. The documents that Stacy had in her possession included a document from the Wisconsin Bar Association that showed Klein as a member. There was also a card issued by a bank in Klein's name with an account number. The fact that Bill and Laura had these documents obviously tied them to Klein. The investigator was convinced that the body recovered from this property in 2007 belonged to Jeffrey Klein. The only thing left to be done was to notify his next of kin to obtain dental records, or DNA. Jeffrey Klein was a big man, weighing in at 310 pounds, and that matched the body. Jeffrey Klein was also on America's Most Wanted list. He had taken his money and run to avoid paying $70,000 he owed in child support. Klein was sitting on $107,000 in cash, which made him the perfect victim for Bill and Laura. He had been afraid to put the money in the bank, in case it was seized and given to his ex-wife. It was obvious that he had money. He spoke English. He was a U.S. citizen that was running from something in the United States. There was never a missing persons report filed for Mr. Klein. He had rented a room from Bill and Laura and disappeared with his money shortly after meeting them. When Wild Bill was asked about Klein, he admitted to killing him, but said that it was in self-defense. One article I read say that he may eventually be extradited to Costa Rica for that offense, but Bill says that the authorities agreed that Klein was killed in self-defense. I want more details, and I searched high and low, but couldn't find anything about how Jeff was killed or how it was figured out to be self-defense. If someone out there knows, please tell me. It didn't take Wild Bill long to learn how the prison system worked. He figured out it was very unlikely that the underpaid guards were going to allow a prisoner to escape, or even to help with the escape, no matter what they tried to pay. However, offering large sums of money definitely brought significant favors to the prisoners. A prisoner could buy cell phones or drugs. People on the street could simply throw items over the prison walls. Night guards might just decide to look the other way when something nefarious was going down if they had a little money in their pockets. Prisoners were allowed conjugal visits and could even pay a woman for her time if he had enough money. Wild Bill had his own phone and access to the Internet and even did interviews with journalists. Now and then he even had a cell to himself. That being said, he got caught after allowing an interview where he videotaped himself inside the prison and was placed into a higher security prison. Meanwhile, the rest of the prison, which is more like a concentration camp, has 8 to 15 men or more in a single cell. He speaks about how terrible prison is, especially for poor prisoners, many who have to sleep on the floor. They practically starve, and there are no real opportunities to learn a new trade, or way to make an honest living. He talks about having had to walk around the prison yard picking up shit. This excrement is wrapped in paper and throw it out of windows because the water only runs for a few hours a day. So if someone has to go, they go on the floor of the shower on pieces of paper and then they throw it outside the window. This is a job that everyone in the prison has to do at one time or another. Bill claims that prison has changed him and that he's reformed even without opportunities to improve his education or what most of us would think of when we think of prison reform. He said being with the prisoners and being a part of their lives has made him a better and happier person. At this time, Wild Bill is serving out his sentence in Panama. He said that typically criminals serve 66% of their time and can also have time taken off in addition to that for good behavior. As of this year, he likely has 15 more years if he serves his full-time, but he's hopeful he can get out earlier. He has embraced religion, become a Christian leader, and has begun a website called Panama Prison Ministries. He says that he's grateful that he was caught because his life was terrible in the last few years before being captured. He also goes on to say he's much happier counseling youth in prison and leading church services than he ever was before being caught. I personally believe that people can change, but even with honest change, most people who know the real William Dothan Holbert will always have their guard up, even if it's just a little bit. The families of his victims may never forgive him, and if they do find it in their hearts to give him the ultimate gift of forgiveness, they will never forget the excruciating pain he caused them by taking the life of someone that they love deeply. When I released Part 1, after hours and hours of research, including listening to interviews given by Wild Bill in the past, I never thought in a million years that I would have the opportunity to interview a serial killer. As I started to promote the episode on social media, a man reached out to me. It was Bill. I couldn't believe it, and I was skeptical at first, until I heard his voice. It was a voice I recognized from the interviews I had listened to during my research, He was willing to do a short interview with me. I'm going to release his interview as a bonus episode next week for those of you who would be interested in listening. Speaking of listening, thank you so much to each and every one of you who tuned in this week and every week. If you enjoyed this two-parter, please subscribe, tell a friend, give a nice rating and review. You can even sponsor the show if you like. There's a link in the show description if you'd like to do so. That's also where you will find my resources. I'd like to thank Jeannie F. for the recommendation on two cases ago, which led me to this case. Thank you so much, Jeannie. Once again, thanks to all of you for listening. And until next time, here's wishing you fair winds and following seas.